Good morning. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the June 16, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. So as we talk about today's program, we'll resume where we left everyone hanging at the conclusion of the brief June 2 interview with humanities professor Jeff Wasserstrom. We shall pursue today what will become uh, of Guyi, his family, and other signatories of their earnest letter of protest in The Guardian, what impact it will have in mainland China, how can Americans better understand the People's Republic of China, and why do we get it so wrong? Stay tuned for a full-blown resumption of that coverage. We'll be right back after a short station break. Well, that is the jingle that brings us to today's vaunted coverage of what's going on over there. I, I, it all, I think this whole wish to cover this stems from my uh, privileged seminar I had with a Titoist at the Claremont Graduate School in 1970, I think 76, 77, and Frederick Warner Neal used to say, nobody over here understands a thing that's going on in China. And there are, aren't that many more that understand what's going on now. So we're going to introduce first get our, the guest for the whole hour, welcoming him back to Ask a Leader, Professor Jeffrey Wasserstrom. Two weeks ago, Professor Wasserstrom turned our attention toward a very contemporary look at the 1989 massacre of Chinese dissidents at Tiananmen Square in Beijing. He had a great deal more to say and avails us more of his time today to take up where we left off. I asked him back because he is part of a very small group of enlightened Americans who get things Chinese. If you heard the June 2nd show, you know exactly what I mean. Jeffrey Wasserstrom is the Chancellor's Professor of History at UCI's School of Humanities with research interests in modern Chinese cultural history with a focus on student protest. He's made a point of publishing for popular as well as scholarly audiences, including his book entitled China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Should Know, published by Oxford University Press and uh, due out an, a new edition, he says, at the uh, end of this year, I would think a really good gift idea. He's also the editor of Journal of Asian Studies, advising editor for China with the Los Angeles Review of Books, editorial board member of Descent Magazine, and can be followed on Twitter, Twitter at jwassers, that's J-W-A-S-S-E-R-S. Jeffrey Wasserstrom completed his BA at UC Santa Cruz, his master's at Harvard, and his PhD at UC Berkeley. He joins me once again in studio. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Jeff, thanks for more of your time. Sure, it's good to be back. Oh, boy. Well, we'll pick up where we left off with the, um, the juicy details about those descending students a little bit later, but I want to start with more of the general at this point about how we Americans just miss what is uh, some really important some, and some subtle, nuanced kinds of things going on. We see in the 90% Han ethnicity, a vision of Chinese conformity, a ubiquitous adherence to Confucian values, and miss what, uh, what Jeffrey Wasserstrom calls the hybrid of belief systems and the sliding scale of dissent. So 
Um, break any of those three factors down and help us out understand how we can just be a little bit more sophisticated of our broad brush coverage of China, this side of the pond. Well, I think one of the first things to, when, when I start teaching a class on China, I often begin by saying that in some ways, it's more useful to think of China as being like a continent like Europe as opposed to one of the countries within it like France. And you know, there's plenty of diversity within France, we know that, but still within China, if you go throughout China, um, we, have, we have a concept of something called Chinese cuisine. We, think of some, we know something called Chinese food. Within China, there are people who view what's eaten in another part of the country as radically dissimilar. In fact, it's a bit like going out for ethnic food if you are in uh, Shanghai and you go out to eat Cantonese or you go out for Sichuan food. It's considered that different. There are places where there's very little spice in food, where food isn't hot and spicy. There are places where it is. There are places traditionally where very little rice was eaten within China, and yet the first thing we thought of in far north China, where rice would be seen as an exotic kind of dish. Now there's been some movement more between that, but I think keeping that in mind, taking one of the things that we think of as homogeneous and breaking it down. And there's even Islamic dishes, right? Oh, and the same thing can go with religious beliefs within China. China has, no. with you can say it with food too, with going out for food from the Xinjiang area within China, which is also largely Muslim, is very, very different from eating in other parts. But I think we're used to thinking of the diversity a bit, at least, that we know that in Tibet and Xinjiang there are people who who are significantly different from another part. So I think the harder part for us to wrap our mind around is how much difference there can be even within parts of what we think of as the Chinese heartland, even within the Han ethnicity. Um, and so there, there, there are a couple of things going on that get in the way of, of realizing the, the degree of difference. And I use food as an example, but you can use all kinds of other things. Um, personality traits, style, what people in one part of the country, the stereotypes they have about people in another part of the country. Um, people in Beijing and Shanghai have very contrasting views of what people in the other city are like, at least as strong as those that New Yorkers and Angelinos have of what, what each other are like. And yet somehow when we're thinking about China, we fall into this lumping together of people within a continent-sized country. And one other distinction you talk about in your book is the generational differences. They all have consumed different history, historical coverages and makeovers of what's happened in China. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we're very aware of, we always talk of generational divides and we're used to that um, within the United States. But in terms of the lived experience with China, because of the speed of change, there can be some issues, um, not even thinking about politics, but thinking about daily life things, that make it more like what we think of uh, a parent and a child in China may have contrasting experiences like a child and a great-grandparent in the United States because of the compression and speed. So wow. you can have somebody now who is a 20-something who owns their own car, whose mother or father never rode in a private car. It wasn't that they didn't own a private car, but they perhaps never rode in a private car growing up during a period when um, bicycles were ubiquitous, when if you was a, um, a motorized vehicle, it would, be, uh, it would be a bus or something like that, where it was only a very, very tiny part of the population that would think about that. So, you know, car ownership, car, just being car dependent, I mean, all of that is a big jump. The other thing that, that I noticed is when I, when I was growing up, the standard telephone was 
a family telephone, a, a home a landline, though we didn't call it that because it was just a phone at that point. A landline where if you talk about it on the phone, the question was whether another family member would overhear you or not. It could be private or it could be overheard by a family member. Somebody growing up at the same time in China would not have had a family phone. The phone would be a neighborhood phone at most, which they would, or a work unit phone. So the question would be whether people who weren't family members but were somebody else overheard it. And then you jump forward to a time when, more in step with the West now, the standard phone is the individual smartphone or cell phone at least. And there never was the standard family phone. Well. And so, and does that make the, are the cell phones more private? And so the converse, or, or, or considering there's that prism where our phone calls are going through too for well, kind of yeah. surveillance. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The question of who's overhearing your phone calls is, is a very different kind of Could be a bigger public now. than ever now. So in both all cases. Are off. Yeah. Though a phone, the big difference in China about um, phones is there's only one cell phone, there's only one phone provider. Okay. <laughs> so when it comes to if the government ever wants to send a message to um, to people, it can send a text message to everybody with a cell phone. And that's happened during occasional uh, protests. Okay. So there, let's, uh, that, we'll keep that in mind. And um, the, another distinction you make is how our media are so very different. We have a tendency, and it's, this throws the Chinese off, that we cover not, we, we go after the bad news. We, that the bad news that bleeds, it leads kind of thing. But, uh, and also that we offer contrasting opinions in our media, and that our media, along the political continuum, always has it out for the People's Republic of China. So the Chinese are trying to deal with that because in their way, presenting the media it's there are it's waxing positive about I guess good examples and that kind of a thing yeah I think that's I think that's true the only thing I would um, modify is that I think the um, the kind of news that gets covered in the in the Western media about China is often bad news and that's what um, that's what some in China will complain about you only cover the bad stories but in fact Western media coverage of China, unlike some other distant parts of the, the world, sometimes vacillates between, oh gosh, isn't it amazing stories about China, and oh horrible, shouldn't we be afraid uh, of China, or how terrible things are there. There are some other parts of the world that literally only make news when it's in a kind of negative sense. What's strange about Western coverage of China, I think, is the alteration between what Perry Anderson wrote about in the London Review of Books as Sinomania and Sinophobia. There are elements of both. But sticking to this question of bad news, it's true that one thing that's very different is how much the presumption is in the United States that what sells newspapers is often negative coverage of, of anywhere. It's, it's, what, uh, it's a whole standard of news. Whereas in China, there's often been a, an approach to only printing positive news about, for example, Chinese leaders. So that then when there's criticism of them, it seems in the Western media, it seems somehow out of, out of whack. But I think the biggest difference is just the variability within, um, within American media, which can lead somebody who's used to a media system in which anything that makes it onto especially television means it has some sort of support from the government to assume whatever is the most outrageous thing written in an op-ed must at some level reflect the opinions of, of the American government. And that can throw, th throw people off. Because in 
the in the People's Republic, the the paper is the voice. The paper is, and especially television, where anything that reaches especially. the largest number of people is more in link with, with, with the government line. I heard a wonderful talk up here by a colleague who was recently hired down at UC San Diego, um, Margaret Roberts, who has studied uh, media in China. And she said, you know, every Chinese television newscast that's 30 minutes is essentially the same 30 minutes. 10 minutes about how hard the leaders are working, 10 minutes about how happy the people are, and 10 minutes about how bad everything in the rest of the world is. And if you have that kind of formula, you get used to it. Even if you know that the media is going to be different here, you think um, that somehow something like what makes it onto television must at some level reflect a kind of official view. Well, I'm curious, uh, Jeff, do you know whether uh, Professor Roberts has uh, viewed that media with uh, and um, immersed with the Chinese household to see how they react to each of those 10-minute uh, segments and if there's a kind of a patterned response that they can all kind of, you know, sort of mimic what's going on. It's almost be satirical at home as they watch the predictable kind of rollout of the news. Yeah, I don't know about her experience, but certainly I know from talking to um, to people in China that there are plenty of people who become skillful decoders of um, official news broadcasts and newspapers and learn to read for sort of small telltale signs of something that um, an outsider might miss. And there, there are some very skilled analysts of, um, of Chinese media that way. The internet has brought a whole new dimension to that, and I think How? this is something. Well, there's all kinds of playful commentary, satire, okay. yeah, onto, onto that, that is speaking back, that gives you a sense of how much kind of skeptical consumption of official news there is. I've had Victoria Bernal, an anthropologist at UCI, and she's talked about how Eritrea, that the Internet has given a, a, a sort of a decentralized voice to uh, a dissenting opinions and, and satire. I mean, really, they've gotten really clever uh, with uh, the increasingly new platform. So this must be, I mean, and I think that she thought the air trains were way ahead of a lot of other uh, societies that were uh, using that platform. Uh, so, uh, but so that's happening too, all yeah, over. It is definitely happening. I mean, the, a lot of the focus in um, Western discussions of the Chinese internet is about censorship and control. And one of the things that that sometimes missed is how creative people can be in getting around that censorship and control. But another thing that's often missed is just how most of what's going on on the internet isn't particularly political there as well as here. What a lot of people are doing is going on the internet to be entertained, to figure out where to eat, to figure out uh, where to shop, to, to come out all kinds of daily life things. But I think one, when you do focus on um, censorship, I'll just mention um, that Professor Roberts at San Diego also was part of a three-person study uh, study um, that's often called the King Study because of the, the name of the, the first author there. And it was a very important study which demonstrated in very sophisticated quantitative terms what a lot of us sensed was happening uh, already. And what they found out was that when it came to what kinds of posts the Chinese government was most concerned about, what kinds they pulled off social media and the web most quickly. It wasn't about how critical of the government the post was. It wasn't about 
um, things that were mocking the government, those could be allowed or they would be censored more slowly. What was censored very, very quickly and tried to make to disappear was anything that implied any kind of action or organization. Gra gathering and grouping and massing. That gathering, the, grouping, and massing. And so they weren't surprised with that. That's been a real it, consistent theme. It, yeah, it wasn't surprising. It was just that they could demonstrate it in such detailed, in such detailed way. Okay. And it confirmed that. And so this is when some people say, oh, is the internet a way to let off steam in China? Is the government allowing? The government is allowing some of that, that the, they realize that people need a way to vent, and that one of the ways that China has become freer or looser than a kind of classic totalitarian state is the government isn't concerned with micromanaging every kind of expression, but that it is concerned with micromanaging, making sure there's no kind of competing organization. And the degrees of repressiveness or openness is really about how widely they make that definition of organization. They've moved in this last year, in the last couple of years, to cracking down on even things as sort of small group gatherings in a household, as which, which is private, but they view that as a form of budding organization. A subversive act. Yeah. For those of you who've just joined us here for the full hour, it's a pleasure to have Professor Jeffrey Wasserstrom talking about uh, all that, everything he knows about contemporary China, and <clears throat> which are things we don't know, we don't know jack about. So it's it's just a real treat. And uh, so uh, the. The China Digital Times, you told us in the last appearance here two weeks ago, is a really good resource, and they're and they're ta they're covering this week about uh, the the direct oversight that Xi Jinping. Let me get let me get the premier's correct. Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. Uh, he's directed the deputy uh, Chinese Communist Party propaganda chief and cyberspace minister. Now, do they in um, in China do they say this is the propaganda chief? Yeah, the term, That's what they know. the term propaganda doesn't have as much of a stigmatic term. Uh, maybe they, it can mean something, the term can mean like public relations. Okay. Yeah. And it has m maybe a paternalistic sort of uh, nuance to it. Yeah, I think it does, because the idea is that in some ways, they even say with censorship is all about keeping dangerous materials or things that are bad for people. I, the term net nanny is sometimes used to describe what the mindset is for uh, for looking after keeping the internet clean. Well, and so this propaganda chief was talking about the four halves that make up good Chinese netizens. So uh, net, net, net nannies are making good Chinese netizens. They're establishing clear rules for individuals' online conduct and uh, for they with the four practices that they ensure are, are, are publicized. So that's, that's a new one that's continuing to sort of refine how everybody's to go uh, to their laptop and, and uh, log on. And, and actually, talk. yeah, and I think that that points to a really important other factor of how the Chinese government tries to manage the potential uh, subversiveness of, of the net. What they would like is most people, most of the time, to be exposed most often to their version of events. So part of that can involve censoring things they don't want people to see, but another is just flooding the internet with the kinds of opinions they want people to see. So one element certainly of um, shaping public opinion is to make as omnipresent as possible the version you want of your, of your brand. If we think about the Communist Party, um, Michael Schenholz, uh, one of the most insightful analysts of Chinese propaganda and official language and things. 
has talked about the need, the value of thinking about Chinese government propaganda as advertising, in which you know it's the only brand that's allowed to advertise politically. And just as it's important for a brand, say Coca-Cola, to, to try to, to hope that there are as few negative stories about the brand as possible going out there. But of course, what they're trying to do is to get you to buy Coke and to like Coke. And so they're trying to cover as much space as possible with things that give you a positive impression of that. And that's how the Chinese government has all, Communist Party government has always dealt with propaganda, that there were walls were covered with images of Mao and slogans during the Mao period that supported Mao and his policies. And now um, public space is covered with things that celebrate Xi Jinping's uh, what he calls the Chinese dream. And so it's not partly about censorship, but it's also partly about flooding, whether it's public space or the public square of the Internet with things that support what the government's saying. Now, when did he um, when did he get married? Um, this is a his, his wife, a very high profile. She's a high. She's a brand too, isn't she? Uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, yeah, Xi Jinping's wife, Peng Liyuan, is uh, um, a well known singer, and I'm not sure the details of when they got married. But what's what's been interesting is that the last couple of Chinese leaders, the last few, their wives have stayed very much in the background. And um, Peng Liyuan, who's quite glamorous and cuts a, a, a figure, has been coming, um, going with him sometimes, accompanying him on diplomatic missions, uh, has been playing more of what we think of as a typical first lady kind of role, which is something we haven't seen in China very often in the past, though we did see it in the pre-communist period with Chiang Kai-shek, who had a very... Um, glamorous American-educated wife, in that case, um, Song Mei Ling, who is a, who was a very powerful diplomatic presence. They were very much of a, of a power couple before that uh, term was used. But one of the things about Peng Liyuan, Xi Jinping and Peng Liyuan now looking more in the kind of superficial sense like a president and first lady is actually there's been a move during the last couple of um, leaders of China toward referring to them as president as opposed to general secretary of the Communist Party or chairman of the Communist Party when Mao did. They wow. still get their power from being head of the Communist Party as well as having the title of president. But there's been a tendency to try to focus on, to use the term in diplomatic ways to emphasize that kind of president, to, to um, accentuate the degree into which they're a leader among other leaders rather than a kind of outlier in some way. We see it also even in the way they dress. Or the, actually, or yeah. or to imply consent of the uh, the public. Yeah, the term does imply something. To, that's a good point. That's a good point. It does imply that. So Xi Jinping took power in November of 2012 when he became head of the party, but then he wasn't installed as president until March of 2013. So that still, he gets his power from these couple of things, but he's also been a little different from his predecessors. He's been different in the role that his wife's played, but he's also been different in that he's taken more hands-on control. The, the last couple of leaders have been more the first among equals in a kind of collective leadership of some sort with tensions within it, but still a sense of being um, the most powerful within a group. Xi Jinping has maximized a lot of positions. He's taken more hands-on control of different things. Jeremy Barmay, um, an Australian uh, China specialist, who's another of the people I think really um, is incredibly astute at understanding Chinese politics, 
um, is involved with a, another website that's very useful called The China Story that's out of Australia National University. He's taken to referring to Xi Jinping as the chairman of everything because he's got such a long list of titles at this point. It's simpler to just call him chairman of everything than to try to remember how many things he directly controls. Well, that's daunting. That's yeah. Oh, wow. So as I said earlier, that he's having direct oversight over the, the cybersphere rules and that kind of thing, how to conduct. And so actually there's two things that we can take up here is in New York Times coverage yesterday, him taking up this tightening uh, descent evermore and his his wife is pictured there sort of looking adoringly at him and uh, he's he's talking to Vladimir Putin so it's a that that's a, that demonstrates in the New York Times a, some some of those points so um moving uh, into that topic how Xi Jinping Jinping is approaching uh, using his clout in all ways he's moving against corruption uh, and you talked about it that would be one way that he's sort of turning on the taking on the the Chinese Communist Party but I I want to make a case for that that dealing with corruption lets him do a, a lot of very self-serving things uh, that I I see it as it allows him to vilify something everyone in the People's Republic can loathe in unison and if I'm not mistaken that the corruption usually has more of a local based sort of criticism that those people way out there have sort of gone astray and they've taken economic opportunities and we've got to go after them and sort of creating a, a boogeyman that's directed away from the national party. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think that's been true throughout um, the period since Tiananmen. One of the way of deflecting um, anger at the center that was very clear during the 1989 protests is to allow people to vent about corruption of local officials and to periodically carry out anti-corruption drives, targeting largely local officials and trying and to give a sense merchants. that as soon as the center knows it takes action, that you can trust the center. This is a, um, this is a familiar thing in many kind of authoritarian uh, states. Where Xi Jinping, and so that, that was done under Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao too. They also launched anti-corruption drives. Xi Jinping has gone further. And one of the things he's done that's new is um, to go after even retired members of the, the real inner core. And um, he recently, uh, recently one of them was sentenced to life in prison. And these were people who in earlier times thought of themselves as being immune from this kind of protection, that their kind of location in the center at one point would sort of carry over um, beyond that. But Xi Jinping, I think you're, you're absolutely right. This has given him a chance to focus the populace on something that everybody has an experience of dislike for, corruption in some form or another. So an anti-corruption drive is quite popular. The thing is, he hasn't gone after any of the people with ties, direct ties to his allies or his family or his allies' families. So there's a way in which, while it's a much broader drive against corruption, it hasn't Selective. proved to me that it's beyond selectivity. Right, and I think that's why uh, the New York Times and other <coughs> other of the um, uh, news sources have found it more difficult to operate in China because the New York Times' huge expose with the, the leading families, huge economic, their financial portfolios. I mean, there was no mistake. It, they led and they, they went very deep with what the whole family trees of influence in the CCP were. And that, and when 
that special action was taken after against a couple of um, news services that had been particularly strong in this kind of forensic reporting of uh, problems at the at the top and nepotism and this the fact that that led to journalists not being able to get their visas renewed and other kinds of retaliatory actions by the Chinese government that shows that that's something that they know is incredibly sensitive and are concerned. So journalists or news organs that had reported on protests or had every year run um, stories about Liu Xiaobo, the Nobel uh, Peace Prize winner who's still in prison, that didn't lead to that direct kind of action because in part the government knows, I think, that this is what could be really toxic to it. This is what could unite people is a sense of disgust at even if they know that this is kind of going on at the high reaches, not just the low ones, to have it spelled out that clearly is something the government fears. Okay. I can't get away from that. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And we have on Ask a Leader this morning for the full hour, Professor Jeffrey Wasserstrom, UCI Humanities Professor, concerned mainly with uh, contemporary China in his research and broad publishing uh, for, for academic and general audiences. And um, we're, we're talking about how the Chinese leadership uh, is or isn't, how, how it's dealing with dissent now, uh, where uh, different platforms pose different opportunities for, for pushing the brand, for, uh, for loosening... T- uh, adjusting the valve of the pressure, the pressure cooker. So I, uh, the New York Times printed this morning a piece uh, about uh, ever-tightening this um, particular uh, d- the dissent. I'm just looking for my notes here, as, as I always want to do. I've got them all over here. Um, and so the issue here, uh, oh, the rest, it's about the arrests uh, in Hong Kong that are Starting to, they've tapered off amazingly, uh, but there, there were arrests now. Uh, the, the arrests haven't tapered off. The protests have. The arrests uh, detained unnamed suspects, according to our press. I'm not sure if they're being named in there, but they're implicating them with explosives ahead of the vote in 2017 for voters to choose their own chief executive directly. Wednesday is an important day. It's the day that a bill will be presented to the city's legislature that would require that all candidates essentially be vetted by a committee, quote, in the article, dominated by Beijing loyalists. So uh, this is an important time. What do you expect is going to happen tomorrow? Well, I don't, uh, unfortunately, I don't think that, um, I don't think that there's a way that that this isn't going to go through. Um, The protests last fall were, um, that were, that were massive, that were very inspiring, that were um, fascinating to to watch. When there was an Occupy uh, movement in Hong Kong, student-led in the end, where, there was there were encampments on streets both in central Hong Kong and in Mong Kok, a more working class neighborhood in, in Mong Kok, a more financial district area on Hong Kong Island itself, um, and this was a fascinating um, test of right. of popular uh, expression of popular discontent with um, with the the hand selection of leaders of Hong Kong. What it was what it was. It's important to know that Hong Kong has never had a fully democratic system. It didn't have a fully democratic system under British colonial rule. The top official was appointed by London. 
Uh, and then after um, the uh, Hong Kong was integrated into the People's Republic of China as a special, special administrative region in 1997, it's had a chief executive office officer who's essentially had to answer to Beijing. And what's but there was the promise that it that that Hong Kong people would get a, a fuller form of democracy over time and that it would be run in a way different from mainland Chinese cities, significantly different for 50 years after that 1997. So the uh, anger that led to the protests uh, last fall was when it was announced that the 2017 selection of the chief uh, executive of Hong Kong would once again be one in which full universal suffrage, open elections would be deferred. And there would again be the, the selection by Beijing. You know, we were just talking about corruption and nepotism, and the, the disgust in Hong Kong with the chief executive is partly about his having to answer to Beijing and being selected by Beijing, which is viewed by some people as meaning that 1997 was just the s substitution of one form of colonialism for another, rather than Hong Kong being liberated from colonialism as, as the discussion in Beijing tried to present it, it was actually just a shift from being controlled by London to being controlled by Beijing. But there's also discussed at corruption and the idea of oligarchy, an idea that the people who wield the most power in Hong Kong are a small number of interconnected, very rich people who are rich in part because of their connections uh, to the government and officials, which is exactly what the critique of corruption within the mainland is as well. The protests ended up um, tapering off. There have been splits within the democracy movement trying to figure out what exactly people want, how much they want to push, whether some kind of compromise is possible. And so while this event is very important to watch how exactly it, it breaks down, in many ways Beijing seems to have ridden out um, the, the challenge that was posed by the people on the streets, there, there's been a weakening of the movement. It was still very inspiring, but it was handled to some extent in a way that undermined a lot of, of, of um, the potential for it. And the fact that there could be whatever the story is of that when we actually find out whether the bombs that were being made had any connection at all to do with the protesters, this is catnip for the Beijing official oh. story, which has always been that the protests in Hong Kong, which the Western press celebrated as peaceful and calm, actually were threatening to bring uh, chaos to the island. So in the 30-minute the news on that the CCP brings, to break that down, the 10 minutes per section, so the, uh, the 10 minutes it could have just had, they could have really zeroed in on the 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 briefcase with the detonation equipment all that and have and uh, with the holy spirit spurious connection between the sort of civil unrest about who who gets how we get to they get to choose their hong kong chief executive and uh, and, and a bomb maker yeah it's i mean obviously you know we don't know what the connection is and uh, but er, during the movement itself one of the most interesting things for me was that for a brief period of time when Beijing was saying there was chaos on the streets of Hong Kong, but there were actually only very orderly protests, the mainland blocked Instagram. It was the first time they'd blocked that particular kind of social media because even just photographs of peaceful protests in Hong Kong would have undermined the story that the government was trying to tell about chaos. As soon as there were scuffles, and there were, 
there were moments of rowdiness in the protests that were kind of bound to be, then there wasn't as much concern because then there could be selective showing of images. The Western press is showing peaceful images, but look at what else is going on on the streets. There can be, if there are peaceful protests now, tomorrow on the or um, when the, the vote is coming, the Chinese media now is fine. They can show images of the bombs. Okay, we'll pivot now to give your editorial that you published in the Los Angeles Time on Tiananmen Squares, uh, the June 4th anniversary with Timothy Cheek. It was uh, really, it, it makes a great case, Jeff, for why we should all be supporting printed media. And it was well done. Uh, the editorial was entitled, China's Slow Motion Revolution Has Stalled. Can you break down the meaning of slow motion? It was picked advisedly by the, the man you quoted in the article. Yeah, now that's a quote from Ian Johnson, who writes now for the New York Times and the New York Review of Books and other other venues, but used to be the Wall Street Journal's Beijing correspondent and wrote a book based largely on his reporting for the Wall Street Journal called Wild Grass, uh, Three Stories of Change in Modern China. And he published it um, early in the 21st century when it seemed that there were slow, very slow, but steady moves toward a greater rights consciousness among uh, ordinary Chinese and that there was starting to be some wiggle room and possibility for action by rights lawyers who were defending uh, ordinary Chinese. So what he was arguing was that we should stop waiting for some kind of dramatic action like a restarting of Tiananmen or something like the Velvet Revolution in Eastern Europe that suddenly toppled communism, but that there might be underway a slow motion revolution, this expansion of people's expectations, the movement to, to right small scale abuses that gradually led to more room to take on slightly larger and slightly larger issues. So he spoke very powerfully, very eloquently with um, very moving profiles of um, people fighting for their rights within China, not trying to change the system, but trying to get the system altered into a better version of itself, and that might gradually lead to the, to the People's Republic of China morphing into a different kind of state. And what we've seen in the last couple of years, um, um, Tim Cheek and I were people who, were, who found that, that kind of vision quite powerful not knowing where China was heading, but saying we could see the signs that what he was describing of this movement in the right direction, in a very slow, two steps forward, one step back kind of motion. But we've seen in the last several years, as, as often as not, it seems to be two steps backwards for every one step forward. And this was written to express in part our, our concern and even dismay at some of the signals we've seen lately of people, for example, you used to be able to say, isn't it amazing that people are doing now things that 10 years ago would have landed them in jail? Now there are some cases where you say, isn't it saddening that things that people were able to do one or two years ago uh, now may, may land them in jail? I just want to quickly interject as we um, go deeper in the article that, that uh, was Ian Johnson also just I guess, assuming a little inevitability about this, uh, only steps forward? Yeah, he, he was very sophisticated. Uh, he is a very he sophisticated is. analyst. He's back in China writing many of the, the, the really best pieces coming out of China are by him. He's okay. an extraordinary figure. Um, he was 
he was avoiding the kind of celebratory uh, inevitability kind of argument that just wait wait around and China will inevitably Americanize and become just like uh, sort of absolutely follow the path of Eastern Europe. He had a more sophisticated thing, but he still thought the trend line was moving in um, in a direction toward toward um, toward toward greater uh, greater freedom slowly. I, I have had an exchange with him since then, and he's he said he still remains more optimistic. Wow. than we do. But what the optimism isn't based in this kind of big picture um, inevitability, but more that he thinks internally that more and more Chinese have this sense of a desire for more choices in many aspects of their lives. And that that, that kind of change, it may take a very long time for it to, to demonstrate itself, but he thinks that in that sense, there's no complete going back. Well, Jeff begs the question then, do you think that's exactly how the, the CCP leader, Xi Jinping, is thinking? He knows that's going on. It's, it's hard to figure. I mean, one of the things that I think requires a great deal of humility among China specialists is even those of us now <laughs> who can say, you know, we've, we're able to spend more time in China than people used to be able to, or we have better contacts, or we have better language skills, or whatever people pride themselves on, we still to some extent, there is a kind of black box at the center of the political okay, system. Okay. Things that when, when Xi Jinping took power, there, there are those of us who were more or less surprised by things that happened. And I think those of us who were less surprised can take maybe a little bit of pride, but we should still have a little, we should still have humility about the fact that we did not see it coming. There wasn't anybody I know, at least, who I was reading who was saying, watch, Xi Jinping will have more of a personality cult than any of the previous leaders and will be more of a kind of maximizer of things into his own hands. That wasn't the debate at all. The debate was, will he, be, uh, will he restart the kind of reform process? Will he be a liberalizer or will we just get more of the same that we saw before? That was the standard way that the kind of debate broke down. And there were those of us who said, we were very skeptical about Xi Jinping being um, a, a, a kind of political reformer, but we weren't necessarily saying, and watch for the signs of this kind of restarting of a kind of personality cult, which we've, we've seen something of. That wasn't because he spent some time in the, was it in Iowa? Didn't he, he has this sort of personal relationship with a little farm that, town? That led to some of the people, uh, including Nicholas Kristof, use that to say he had a good feeling about Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping's, he was sending, Xi Jinping's daughter was going to Harvard. There was a kind of sense that maybe he would be more open to a kind of uh, Western values and things. And in fact, quite the opposite. He's been talking more about the need to protect China against Western values, which doesn't explain why he wanted and other members of the elite want their children to be educated in, in the West. Um, it's a very interesting conundrum. Very interesting. And uh, I just like that uh, in your editorial, your, one of your sources is a barkeep who summed up, it's, you first give us the phonetic Chinese, but the, the translation in there is, his watchword was, if it isn't a movement, anything goes. And that's what you've already been saying is any any gathering, whether it's a gathering in the on a platform in the cybersphere, if it's a gathering in the, under a bunch of hum, umbrellas in uh, 
Hong Kong or uh, if it's now, let's go to that gathering in uh, on the Guardian article. First, there was a gathering of 11 signatories and it grew to 50. So let's let's tr uh, we'll try to jump in and tie everything up here. Uh, Gu, Ying, uh, Gu Yi and 11 other students wrote, uh, I guess it was a letter to the editor. It wasn't an article. It was an open letter. An open letter uh, of protest about their their coming to the realization that the, their country lied to them about that uh, the, it was an omission, uh, an error in omission of not uh, mentioning, not, not disclosing what had happened in Tiananmen Square. In, in 1989, but so uh, I was concerned at the end of the interview we did June 2, uh, what is going to happen to those signatories? What's going to happen to their families? Because we're t that we're seeing in the China Digital Times that there are there the repression is getting exported. So um, the people are being dealt with the NGO, the foreign NGOs are being dealt with, and family members are being dealt with that have students that are overseas. Um, yeah, we we don't know with this particular one. I mean, the reason for I mean, it was a very bold thing for students Very. abroad to to do to write that open letter and then it got picked up the story got picked up by the guardian but it also got criticized by an official chinese newspaper which led to a great deal of um publicity for the event um so it's interesting i mean backtracking um the the approach tiananmen the june 4th massacre where uh, students, bystanders, workers were killed in the streets of Beijing near, uh, near Tiananmen Square has always been something that there's been very tight control over any kind of uh, discussion of, especially in any kind of public sphere within uh, mainland China. One of the differences with Hong Kong is that it's the one part of the People's Republic of China where you can talk about that, where the schools can teach about it, where there are rallies every year to commemorate the lives that were lost by protesters. And that's continued. That's one of the things to watch with Hong Kong. Okay. Uh, if there's ever an inability to do that, then you'll know that the difference with uh, Hong Kong or the mainland has truly um, been 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 pushed together more screws on the plate more yeah and and so there were there were still vigils in uh hong kong this year though there was an interesting kind of um discussion this year of differences in how to commemorate it because what a lot of there have been a lot of efforts to say in the past that we should gather together on june 4th because we still believe in the cause of democracy in china there were some people who were saying well actually I think Hong Kong needs to fight for its own survival. Um, is that really? Is it really a China-wide struggle if there if there were so little support on the mainland for what was going on in Hong Kong and how much Hong Kong has moved uh, separately? And in in a way, the Hong Kong protests were in part about contesting the Communist Party's until now relatively successful effort to convince the world that they have a kind of monopoly on what it means to represent Chinese-ness. And so the Hong Kong protests, it's a very, very, very complicated, but there was still the ability to speak about June 4th and to gather about June 4th at that moment. There still is the ability to do so abroad. The issue is the intertwinement of the abroad and China, in part because of connections to schools, people flowing back and forth. It creates a very complicated um, situation. One of the ways, there are various ways that um, people can be punished, even when the People's Republic of China can't control them. Uh, for example, some of the Hong Kong protesters have been penalized by not being allowed to travel to the mainland. 
if you're blocked from traveling to the mainland and you're a Hong Kong uh, college student who's looking for a job after graduation, an international company that wants to do business on the mainland as well as in Hong Kong might not want to hire you. So that's a way in which the Chinese government, by just saying, well, we should be able to control who crosses the border into the mainland, can actually be punishing economically the students in Hong Kong. And I find this, what, what's deeply ironic is even companies that have trouble in the mainland, when they hire somebody in Hong Kong, kind of want somebody who can help them ease the tension with the mainland so they may discriminate against these students who were protesting against. Wow. Uh, so it's a, it's a very kind of complicated thing. And who knows what will happen to the students who were part of that letter all the way from not being able to return to getting in trouble if they return or their, having their family's household. Yeah. All of these things are possibilities in it. Gives a new meaning for a red shirting somebody here. <laughs> so, well, um, and in your article, you also, you talk about, and it's fascinating me, I, we could spend a whole half an hour, hour on how the reason, the whole idea, the, the sort of the gray area here is that, that for making the case for all of this repression is the Chinese leadership observing what's happened in post-Soviet societies, and fast forward to the Arab Spring. They've seen this disarray that followed the re the shuffling of the leadership deck. So, Jeff, you run with this as we have uh, time uh, remaining on the show. It's, yeah. it's huge. Well, I wrote a piece for Time Magazine that I'm I'm still quite proud of, though I don't like the title they gave it. What I gave what I called it was. Um, bad news elsewhere is good news for the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. And what I meant was that whenever there's bad news about a post-authoritarian or post-communist uh, setting, things going badly there in whatever way, this is a godsend to the Chinese Communist Party that can say, even if you don't like us, even if you don't trust us, even if you don't think we're good people, are you sure that post-communism will be better? You don't want you want to this? avoid the precipice. You want to avoid Stay the precipice. Stay on our surface. You began by referring to, um, uh, the, the title they gave it was Good News Elsewhere is Bad News for China. I don't think it's bad news for China. I think we should separate China and the Chinese people from the Chinese Communist Party, as much as the Chinese Communist Party sometimes wants us to forget that. But you began by mentioning uh, Professor Eric, and yeah. Frederick Warner Neal, yeah, and the days of Tito. Yugoslavia was it was a godsend for the 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 fate of Yugoslavia after Tito. So under Tito, Yugoslavia was a place that was under authoritarian rule, but did not have um, the kind of interethnic violence that we've seen since then. Um, Yugoslavia is a country that was held together under Tito and is now broken apart. So in the 1990s, when uh, the former Yugoslavia was a place of some of the worst kinds of violence and chaos, the Chinese Communist Party could spend a lot of time talking about that as what happens after communism. They didn't talk a lot about the Czech Republic, where things were going quite well. They could just selectively play up the bad news about the places that were in the worst shape, the same way that they could play up the chaos of uh, situations in Egypt and Libya now. And these kinds of things, it makes kind of a kind of argument that is a quite cynical one and isn't made so much directly, but can be, even if you don't like us, are you sure that what would happen next would be better? And this isn't because Chinese people have a, have a sort of DNA that hates chaos. It's that a lot of people have lived through periods and their parents and grandparents lived through periods when things were chaotic in China and life was really, really bad. 
And, so, and yeah. it's not hard to document that disarray. It was, it's really quite vivid all over the world. It's current. I mean, they can show the, the People's Republic newspapers in the front to show this is actually happening now. They, they so don't have to make those things up. They don't have to. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, uh, let's close on this this uh, question that's going to prevent you from ever going back to China ever again, Jeff Wasserman. That's not my goal, but it might do that. But what do you think? I'm, I have one guess uh, answer to this question, but what do you think is the most subversive thing that a Chinese dissident or a budding Chinese protester could do that would uh, escape detection by the the People's Republic Party, uh, P- Republic parties, uh, the People's Republic Chinese Communist Party leadership? Uh, that's that's a really great um, question. I guess if I if I could really think of something, I'd rather say it privately than publicly. Okay. But I, but I, but I, I can't. But I can say what I think the the fear or the kinds of things that that keep um, the Communist Party leaders up at night. I would think would be the the most dangerous kinds of protests in the in different in settings like this are ones in which people from different walks of life feel. On completely feel the same about what's going on and feel that could be what the people who take to the streets, that could be me. And I think the kinds of things that would could lead to that kind of galvanizing would be something that was an environmental crisis oh. that, that people felt was clearly attributable to the kinds of corruption or natural disaster that had links to official malfeasance looking the other way due to kinds of acts of corruption and things like that. There was an incident like this that that I think was one of the worst nightmares of the party was when high, uh, there was a high-speed train accident. And the high-speed oh, yeah. trains are something that the government pr- prides itself on, the hyper-modernity of them, brags about. This was something that was a government showpiece. And it became clear that corners were cut in safety regulations because of corruption, runaway corruption in the ministry. And then the government tried to literally bury the evidence of not following up on this by literally burying one of the train cars. And social media managed to get stories about that out. And that was the kind of thing where people across the country could have, if there, if it had something like that on a larger scale had happened, people in the country would have all said, that could have been me on that train. That could have been my child. Okay. That could have been my mother. And that would be the kind of thing that would galvanize support even in a controlled state. And maybe more specific, more vivid than uh, sort of a uh, the looming environmental, uh, I'd say urgency. It's 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 critical the the whole air quality issue, and that's attributable to the Chinese economic engine. But I guess that that doesn't quite. I mean, I guess that could be a burgeoning sort of a, a point around which there might be more dissent, more organization. And then I I would just wonder if if these. Jinping is also kept up awake that with every uh, grouping of of Chinese students that go abroad to get an education, that they're going to bring back some critical thinking uh, toolkits. That's definitely possible, but it's also there are some people who go abroad and go back as nationalistic or more so really? than before. Okay. You can be both cosmopolitan and that. I mean, we've still got a hope. I don't see a better... Example, I do like to believe still that being um, having your mind open and being more critical. And I think it's important to realize that that people can become back patriotic, but patriotism can lead to protest in the kind of case you described. You can say, I love my country. It's a country that deserves to have cleaner air. It's a country that deserves to have more moral leaders. So I, I don't think we should count out the younger generation simply because so far we haven't seen 
that kind of mass action. We see a lot of different kind of expressions of opinion on the web, in private conversations, and we're always surprised by a generation that takes to the streets. We were surprised in 89. I heard people say that generation isn't going to amount to much. It's uh, too materialistic. It only cares about itself. And then we had the protests. The same things were said about the Hong Kong students before they took to the streets. Well, there's a bit more to cover. Uh, maybe with another topical development, we can get Jeffrey Wasserstrom back on. I'm so glad for your generous offering of time to resume your most compelling consideration of all important notions of what contemporary China is all about. Thanks, Jeffrey Wasserstrom, for coming back. Oh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Well, we're going to close. Next week's show is overflowing with cultural flair. Eli Simon and guest director Beth Lopes will uh, give us a taste of the summer's New Swan Theater offerings, Much Ado About Nothing and Macbeth. And then special curator for the Bowers Museum, Victoria Gerard, will talk about their embarrassment of riches this summer in beautiful downtown Santa Ana. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. 